Extraordinary Districts, Season 2, Episode 4, Fast Improvement in Delaware. Extraordinary Districts, a podcast series from the Education Trust that investigates what ordinary school districts do to get extraordinary results. If you're a principal, a superintendent, a mayor, a member of a school board, or just someone who thinks that schools need to do better, this podcast is for you. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. We believe that children can learn to high levels no matter what their background, and thanks to a grant from Overdeck Family Foundation, we are going to school districts that demonstrate how. Today, improvement in Delaware. If you're not familiar with the Education Trust or my previous work, we start with data. We look for districts that serve children of color or children from low-income families that are either high-performing or rapidly improving. And then we try to figure out what they're doing so that others can learn from their expertise. We use as our starting point the work of Sean Reardon at Stanford University. You can hear about his work if you go to www.edtrust.com org slash Extraordinary Districts, and look for Episode 1 of Season 1. One of the many analyses Reardon has done is to identify districts where African-American students are improving academically faster than white students. When I looked at his list, one district's name stood out, Seaford, Delaware. I had been hearing about Seaford because it was named one of the fastest improving districts in Delaware three years in a row. One thing is for sure, Seaford really needed to improve. Uh, Our scores were in the basement. Back in 2013, two of the district's four elementary schools were named as Focus Plus schools. That was the term Delaware used to identify its lowest performing schools. A third school was about to be added to the list. Today, a higher percentage of Seaford students are meeting state standards than in the rest of the state, And African-American students aren't the only ones improving rapidly. Every group of students is improving, and test score gaps are narrowing dramatically. To see some charts with the improvement data, go to our website. I wanted to find out how it made so much improvement, so I headed to rural Delaware. I'm Dave Parrington. I'm the superintendent of Seaford School District in Seaford, Delaware. Parrington arrived at Seaford's Nader, Not only was overall achievement low in the district, but there were big disparities in achievement. Especially with uh, the subgroups of of low income, uh, our ELL population, uh, our our students with IEPs, and and, um, the other subgroup was African American. For those of you not up on all the educational terms, ELL refers to students who are English language learners, And students with IEPs are students with disabilities who have individualized education plans, or IEPs. Many of Seaford's African-American students were doing terribly. The general feeling among many in Seaford was that low performance was the fault of the students and their families. There was a lot of blame in. That's longtime Seaford teacher Tammy Steele. A lot of it would be, oh my gosh, these kids are coming not ready to read, and we're playing so much time to play catch-up, and they're never ready to, you know, do the next grade level, and they're just staying behind, 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 behind. So yeah, we we probably did blame a lot of that on, on the kids, on the families, on the situations. 
I should say that Seaford is in southern Delaware, often called Lower Delaware. Lower Delaware has a long, difficult racial history. In doing the research for this episode, I ran across a story about the failure of an effort to desegregate schools in Lower Delaware that had a profound effect on the state and possibly the country. I explored the little-known story of the Milford 11 in a separate, special edition of Extraordinary Districts that we released for the 65th anniversary of the Brown v. Board of Education decision. I hope you'll listen. For now, though, I want to keep the focus on Seaford. To orient you a little, Seaford School District is about 80 square miles framing the Nanticoke River, including the towns of Seaford and Blades. Despite its name, it's about 30 miles from the Atlantic Ocean. It's part of the stretch of farmland that Washingtonians drive through to get to the beach. Steel sheds housing thousands of chickens are a common sight, as are flatbed trucks carrying hundreds of wire cages holding chickens about to become chicken parts. It wasn't all that long ago that the town of Seaford boasted of being the nylon capital of the world. Throughout World War II, DuPont's plant in Seaford made nylon for the war effort, and afterward it made Dacron. About 4,000 people earned a good living at the plant. But jobs started to be cut in the 1980s, and eventually DuPont closed the plant. Well-paid line workers, chemists, engineers, and plant managers moved. Today, Seaford has a rate of poverty that is twice that of Delaware. Along with DuPont went the jobs, went uh, a tax base that was a- extremely important, and uh, Seaford started to change. That's Dave Parrington again. When he first took the job as superintendent, he found that Seaford had become home to quite a few immigrants, many of whom work in the nearby chicken plants. Today, Seaford Public Schools has about 3,400 students, about 35% are white, 21% Hispanic, and 38% black, most of whom are longtime Delawareans, but some of whom are immigrants from Haiti. And they kept saying, well, Seaford is not what Seaford was. And after several months here, it became very evident to me, and I shared this with my staff at opening day, is that the difference is this. The world has come to Seaford. You've changed. There's languages being spoken that, that, that you have not heard before. There are ethnic groups that, that live here that have never lived here before. Here's another piece of context. Seaford had had one superintendent for 30 years, and when he retired, the school board brought in someone from outside Delaware. He lasted two years, and then there was an interim superintendent. The school board was looking for someone who would provide some stability. That is the number one job of a school board. The number one biggest job, the number one, the reason we exist is to hire a superintendent. Uh, Mike Kraft and I am the current school board president of the Seaford School District. Kraft is a fourth-generation Seaford resident. He went to Seaford schools, and his sons went to Seaford schools. He ran for school board in part because he wanted to do something about the reputation of the schools. It's easy to sit at the coffee shop or in the Walmart parking lot or food line and say, my gosh, it's terrible. Can you believe what's going on there? It takes a little more to say, we have some challenges. I I think I want to get involved. Kraft and the rest of the board were looking for someone who could help Seaford be better without wanting to tear everything up. You don't want him to think, well, gosh, he thinks we're broke. He thinks there's a problem. He's going to come in here and, and who knows what. We've seen what that looks like with the previous one before the interim. 
Parrington had been an assistant superintendent in a higher-performing district about 40 miles away. Kraft says that Parrington sounded an optimistic note. It's cyclical, right? We just might be in some down years. I said, cool, man, take us where we got to go. For Parrington, Seaford represented opportunity, not just to become a superintendent, but to build a leadership team. He knew there were several openings and more about to open up. If we could get the right team here, that uh, we could be extremely successful and our students would be extremely successful. Parrington has a few basic ideas about how to build a functional district. The first is that school leaders are the key to school improvement, in large part because they build relationships and a collective sense of efficacy. So he set about hiring two new elementary school principals and brought a principal from his old district to serve as an assistant superintendent in charge of curriculum and instruction. Five years in, almost every administrator in the district has been hired by Parrington. It was the ability to get that leadership team in that really was making, uh, that would make the difference from that point forward. When Parrington hires a principal, he's looking for a couple of things. One of the characteristics to me that that's the most important is I never stop learning. I can get better at what it is that I'm doing. And acceptance beyond acceptance, a strong belief in equity that this is what it's about, that you truly believe. And it's not just a, a, a word that, that you like to use, but it's in practice every day. And you can demonstrate that. It's the point of schools. It is. That's that you're right. That's why that's why we do exist. But somewhere along the way, we've forgotten that all students should have access to a quality education. You know, our our slogan is success for all students. And it's not just a slogan; it's a belief. That that that's what we look at. So, with a leadership team committed to ongoing learning and inquiry, Parrington took a look at the district. You need to understand who your students are so you can build the relationships that are necessary for instruction to take place. So we spent a good amount of time that first year talking about the Seaford, not of 30 years ago, but the Seaford of today and what that, that school district looks like and what the demands would be uh, with instruction for, for that population. There were still good things going on in Seaford uh, before we arrived. And there were parents out there that knew that. And they were getting tired of, of, of hearing all these negative reports uh, about Seaford. Like it was a violent place and it was a, a place where your child wasn't going to be safe. And uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Still, Parrington saw a major weakness in Seaford. We were program rich and instructionally poor. That these programs were the newest shiny item that was out there. You know, I, I came from a traditional background that when you came in, the first thing you did is you, you get a strategic plan, right? Strategic plans for at least five years. So you do all this work, you bring the community together and all the stakeholders, they do all this work. And so you have this strategic plan. And this is what I find about strategic plans. They usually sit and they collect dust. So we went to a 90-day plan, which is more sci a more scientific approach. And 90 days allows us to fail and correct it and learn from it. Life itself 
is trial and error and correcting it and then moving ahead and keep working on it. Please note, Parrington was not providing answers. Rather, he was putting in place a method to guide the improvement process. I am talking about scientific method. I'm, I'm just saying, let's reintroduce something that we know works, and we know in the rest of the world and in the other disciplines it works, and it can work for us. I said before that three of the four elementary schools in Seaford were among the lowest performing schools in the state, which raises the question, what was going on in the fourth elementary school? Central Elementary School posed a key equity challenge, not because it was low-performing. It wasn't. But Central had become, within the district, the choice for many of the better-off families, which meant that... It was very skewed, the demographics. Years earlier, Central had gone to a year-round schedule. Year-round schools have shorter, more frequent breaks. The idea is to keep students from sliding back during the traditional summer break. Initially, the intercession breaks were filled with classes providing extra help and fun activities. But budget cuts meant the intercession classes ended, and the year-round schedule actually made it harder for many families to enroll. Many of our parents uh, both were working, and they just couldn't afford to find daycare that was split up that way. And, and the intent was honorable. Uh, the, the, the intent was logical except it came back for, did you really understand your at-risk population and what can they afford and what can't they afford and what are issues that sometimes uh, we dismiss because we don't think about them. Parrington had only been in Seaford a year when he took on what most superintendents would flee from. He changed the neighborhood boundaries that the elementary schools drew from and made it much harder to transfer from one to the other. I remember he and I having a conversation about that when he first went there. He said, I just can't, I can't live with this. I can't live with this. That's Sharon Brittingham. Those of you who have read my book from 2007 may recognize that name. She led a high-performing school in nearby Indian River District for years. For the past decade, she has been coaching principals all over the state. She knows improvement when she sees it, and she is impressed with Seaford's improvement. She's also a Seaford native. I asked her about Parrington's boundary plan. I didn't think he'd be able to pull it off, truthfully. I mean, he and I talked about this. I, I wish you luck. I mean, I think it's great that you're going to do it, but I don't, I, you know, I, I think you're going to have some community backlash. There was some pecking out there about it, and there was a lot of, I think they had a lot of community meetings about it. it, it it's the best thing to happen to Seaford. It really is. Parrington asked demographers at the University of Delaware to map where in the district children lived and to draw equitable boundaries. Many parents argued that Seaford was destroying its only reasonably performing school, but Parrington was adamant. I keep coming back to the term equity. It was about equity because to us, our feeling was these are community schools and these schools should reflect the community. In community meetings, he had the backing of his school board. Here's Mike Kraft again, the school board president. If you believe in us, it doesn't matter where the line is. It doesn't matter where the, the kids go. Because if we're going to redistrict and draw a line, I'm going to ensure you, because I'm going to hold Dave and his folks accountable, 
I'm going to ensure you it doesn't matter which door they walk in, they're going to get the same exact education. And you're going to love that school just as much as the other, whether they stay where they are, whether they have to go to another one. So we took the reorganization as a bring it on. That's Chandra Phillips, assistant principal of Central Elementary, the school that used to have the year-round calendar. The teachers here teach kids. The culture here is we're going to teach whoever you send us. It doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, what your background is, what your resources are. It's because we have teachers here who care about kids and have a passion for their job. Phillips has a unique perspective. Not only did she attend Central as a child, but her mother did as well. In fact, her mother was one of three African-American students who integrated Central back in 1962. She was a second grader and had been selected to go because of her high test scores. Yeah, well, it was a sad situation. That's Phillips's mother, Carol Kellum, speaking from a cell phone. I asked her what she meant. They didn't want to integrate the schools. We were escorted by police to the school, and people were on the sidewalks yelling, you know, go home, N-word, go home. It wasn't until 1967 that Seaford would fully integrate. That meant for years, Kellum and two other African-American students were the only black students in Central. I don't recall being angry or mad. I just recall going to school. And the only, the only incident that really stands out in my mind is when I asked my teacher to go to the bathroom and she didn't let me. She didn't let me and I went on myself. And they had to call my parents to come out and uh, bring me clean clothes. That's about the first incident that I had, and I think that was kind of the breaking point for the rest of the teachers because I, I think she got in trouble for that. If you would like to see more about this story, go to www.edtrust.org extraordinarydistricts for a link to a news story done by a local television station about Chandra Phillips and her mother. Here's Phillips again. So full circle, we went from segregation to integration. Now I'm back to segregation because the people who are leaving, Karen, are the white people with resources. In talking about white families leaving, Phillips is talking about Delaware's Choice Program, which allows parents to apply to any school in the state if they can provide transportation. Some Seaford students leave Seaford to go outside the district. Phillips described what it was like when she grew up in integrated Seaford schools. If you're born and raised in Seaford, you went to one of these elementary schools, you went to the middle school, and you went to the high school. So it was this core of people that you traveled with until you graduated. So there was this sense of camaraderie and a sense of pride that was built. And two things happened. DuPont left and school choice. Because now people leave elementary and they go to the School of Arts and Science, they leave the middle school and they go to Sussex Tech, which I truly believe is another form of segregation. School board member Kraft believed that by making it easy for families to choose the year-round Central High School, Seaford had been encouraging families to shop around for a school rather than go to their community school. And we were almost teaching our, our community at the elementary level how to choice out of a school and into a school so that when they got to the middle school level, they could choice out when they went to high school somewhere else. Well, we're used to choice, and they showed us how to do it. But yeah, we drew a hard line in the middle of the road and said, guess what, your kid's going here. I probably had the most kickback of the four schools. That's Carol Levely. 
principal of Frederick Douglass Elementary School, the school that had traditionally enrolled African-American children in Seaford, and one of those identified by the state as low-performing back in 2013. She had been hired by Parrington to come to Seaford after a successful career in Maryland. I I didn't even know what choice was, because in Maryland there was no such thing. Um, or at least in my county. So I was, and I was too busy to even realize that people were asking not to come here. I mean, I, I think it, we were known as the ghetto school, the drug school, the neighborhood. Oh, it's not safe. I don't want my kid there. Blah 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 blah. Chandra Phillips agrees with Levely. White people don't give Frederick Douglass a chance because it was the black school. It was known for the black school. Where it's situated in town has always been known as the black part of Seaford. You know, you had West Seaford, where white people lived because it was over by DuPont, and the country club was in West Seaford. Who's part of a country club ever? White people. Um, so it got a bad rap being in, in the city, in the town of Seaford, being the black school, being called Frederick Douglass. Like, all this stuff is people's perceptions before they even step their foot into the building of Frederick Douglass. Here's Lovely again. I can tell you, when I said I spent my whole summer convincing parents that Frederick Douglass was an okay place for their kids to come, if I would have been tallying the race of the parents I was convincing, uh, 93.7% were definitely Caucasian. Levely believed in what she was telling parents because at that point she had spent a year at Frederick Douglass experiencing the culture of the school and figuring out ways to change it. I had no idea how toxic a place this was until I walked in the door. Part of the toxicity she is talking about came from what we heard about before. Many of the teachers were nostalgic for the days of DuPont and blamed the school's low performance on the students and families. Levely spent a great deal of her first year trying to build a different kind of culture. Because DuPont's not coming back. We're not going to have that clientele back. So what can we do to make any parent want to come to our school? I think one of the best things that first year that I remember is um, we had uh, every month, we do, I'm, I'm allowed to do two faculty meetings a month because of a negotiated agreement. And one of the two faculty meetings, we started with celebration. And I called it BYOB just because to make it a little fun, and, but it's bring your own brag. And... Uh, started small, like I had to do all the bragging. And when I had a staff member share their BYOB, I felt like that was a big victory. I celebrated every little victory we had. If we had a kid win a coloring contest for a fire prevention, the whole world knew about that. I mean, I could have cared less they were coloring, but you know what? We had, we had positive press. That first year, Levely set about trying to ensure that every classroom had a teacher interested in improving. Some weren't. I had so many improvement plans. I had so many people terminated. I had so many people that retired unexpectedly or resigned because of the pressure I was putting on them because they weren't good for kids. Another thing that somewhat muted parent protests was that the schools were broken up by grade levels. Instead of four elementary schools that went through fifth grade, Seaford now has two schools that go to second grade. Their sister schools, Central and Frederick Douglass, go from third through fifth. All four have demographics roughly similar to the district as a whole. Here's Superintendent Parrington again. Not only did we say, okay, this is a way to 
to redistribute our population so that our schools uh, mirror what our community looks like. In addition to that, we realized that there was some potential instructional gains too. In other words, you have more grade two teachers working together uh, that are, can have those types of deep discussions about instruction. Uh, that's important for improvement. And that's where this story stops being about organizational structures and starts being about instruction. You just heard Parrington say how important it is for grade-level teachers to work together to improve instruction. We heard something very similar in the last episode. Lane School District in Oklahoma began its improvement process by giving teachers the time and resources to learn from each other. So now I want to introduce the person in charge of Seaford's curriculum and instruction. My name is Corey Miklas, and I'm the assistant superintendent of the Seaford School District. Miklas was Parrington's first hire when he came as superintendent. Miklas had been a teacher, a principal, and a supervisor of instruction in Parrington's previous district. Two of the schools he led had been recognized as National Blue Ribbon Schools by the U.S. Department of Education. Miklas brought to Seaford a great deal of knowledge about reading instruction. That knowledge became absolutely key to what happened in Seaford. I kind of think back to when I, when I went through college, undergrad, I learned the whole language approach. We talked about whole language in the last episode. Whole language is a philosophy built on the idea that students will absorb how to read if they're surrounded by written language and interesting, compelling literature. It was just an organic way to learn reading. It's probably the best way to describe it in these terms. So now, when I came to Delaware, which was 21 years ago, so I remember my mentor sitting me down and saying, all right, now we need to plan for your small reading groups. That was foreign to me. When Nicholas came to Delaware, for the most part, the state had moved away from whole language reading instruction toward what is often called balanced reading instruction. Balanced reading still has a lot of elements of whole language with the addition of some phonics instruction. It was an explicit phonics instruction. So I was thrown into this without a phonics background trying to get students to read. I struggled as a teacher. What changed for Miklas was a federal program known as Reading First. So my eyes opened up and said, wow, this is what was missing for me all of those years. Reading First was a $2 billion program begun under President George W. Bush that provided a great deal of training to teachers in how to teach the early reading skills of phonemic awareness, phonics, and fluency. The full story of Reading First is beyond the scope of this podcast. Suffice it to say that it became mired in controversy and ended after a few years. A national evaluation cast doubt on its efficacy, but evaluations in some states showed positive results. After reading first, Delaware's fourth grade reading achievement improved as measured by the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Whether the improvement was because of reading first is impossible to know, but certainly some in Delaware think so. For me, what I liked about reading first was the training my teachers received. The training was just top-notch. Like, I've seen teachers just grab a basal book and follow how to teach the phonics lesson, because that's what's written in the book. This was specific. If your child struggles with this, based on the data, you now do this. It was very systematic. Um, very, uh, there was no time wasted. Our training was very tight on, you have 20 minutes to get through these skills, boom, boom, boom. 
these students are already struggling, you don't need to slow them down. They need to be, the process needs to be sped up, which I completely uh, believed in. They need more, they don't need less. I, as a principal, I was so impressed. So the, the school I was in was a struggling school, but under Reading First, you just kept seeing scores rise and rise and rise. And again, they became a blue ribbon school. So if it didn't work, how in the world did that achievement gap decrease? Knowing what he did about reading instruction, Miklas was presented with a dilemma when he arrived in Seaford. Seaford had spent half a million dollars on new reading textbooks the year before, and he said the teachers already knew the textbooks weren't great. They put teams of teachers together that were rewriting things, rewriting assessments, rewriting lessons, reordering lessons. So now I come in, and I take a look at this, and I said, mm, I could see there was an issue right at the gate. I had two issues. One, the district has spent a lot of money, and two, staff just put a lot of effort into it. So if I come in as the new person in a turnaround situation where they've seen several different administrators, and each administrator came in was putting a new program in front of them, so I was going to be the next guy who says, this is bad, we need a new program. So I was in a bad situation out of the gate. So really, I, I thought long and hard about how to navigate that situation without angering everybody and making this crazy change. Miklas decided to call Sharon Walpole. Walpole is a reading researcher at the University of Delaware. She had provided much of the Reading First training to Miklas's school years earlier. She knows her stuff as far as reading research. He explained the situation to her. This is not a staff who's open for change right now. Walpole had been working on developing a new reading program and had put the materials online so they were available for free. But together they agreed that they would not start with that. We started with training around just good reading strategies. And Sharon and I worked to develop this agenda to ensure that we were able to bring in. So here is what's important in reading. And we listened to the, the, the teachers as well. And then we started giving them ideas and lesson plans to try. After a while, they provided a few books and lessons from Walpole's new program, and then a few more. Teachers liked the books. Walpole listened to what the teachers had to say and incorporated some of their suggestions. Now Seaford is fully using her program called Bookworms. Miklas and many others I talked with think it has been key to Seaford's improvement. To find out more about bookworms, I went to the source. I'm Sharon Walpole. I'm a professor at the University of Delaware in the School of Education, and I'm also director of the university's Professional Development Center for Educators. But third, I'm the author of Bookworms K-5 Reading and Writing. For many years, Walpole had worked with a colleague at the University of Virginia to understand what helps schools improve. Like We actually have a lot of experience trying to help schools solve all the problems related to instruction. Scheduling, coaching, observation and feedback, principal support, teacher training and collaboration, all those things. We've been doing this for years. And then we th think, well, it doesn't matter how much of that you do if your curriculum is bad. So we thought, what if we gave that a go? So that's what we set out to do, to see if we could build something that was consistent with evidence, and reasonable for regular humans to do. 
Walpole knows that many reading textbooks are low in quality and that most teachers have neither the time nor the knowledge and skill to make them work. Bookworms provides teachers with every reading lesson they will need for every day, every year, from kindergarten through fifth grade so that they can focus on teaching rather than lesson planning. And it's all online for free as an open education resource. It's actually very carefully sequenced daily instruction that follows a repetitive routine and uses only trade books. By trade books, Walpole means what most people would consider real books. Picture books like Caldecott winner Snowflake Bentley. Biographies like Harvesting Hope about Cesar Chavez. Historical fiction like Blood on the River. And novels like Newbery Honor winner Because of Winn-Dixie. The books are the main cost to the district, and they are much less expensive than textbooks. In the course of their six years in elementary school, students in bookworms are required to read or listen to 276 books, all of them chosen by Walpole. And then if you finish, read from the classroom library whatever you want. We want kids to choose to read. Bookworms is not the only reading program that has children read whole books. But most schools still use traditional reading textbooks that only require children to read passages and excerpts, not whole books. Bookworms is very simple in its structure. Basically, every day is the same routines. And that actually allows teachers to actually introduce and support much more text reading than any other curriculum ever, I think. Bookworms requires that every elementary student has three 45-minute chunks of reading and writing instruction, adding up to two hours and 15 minutes every day. Every minute is spoken for. There's time for students to work in small groups with the teacher to build the skills required in reading, and time for them to read aloud together as a class, in pairs, and by themselves. There is also time to write about and discuss what they are reading, and it has time every day for them to listen to teachers reading books that are one or two or even three grade levels above what they would normally be able to read on their own. Cognitively, in reading, that's because the more you read, the more incidental vocabulary growth you get. So, and that's the real problem. We know how to teach phonics. If people don't do it, that's on them. We know how to do it, but that's not the problem. The problem is kids aren't learning enough stuff about the world every day at school. And, and it's true that when kids come home sometimes and their caregivers say, what did you learn in school today? And they say nothing. Sometimes that's true. And I don't think that's okay. I, I don't want a single kid in this country to get off the school bus and not learn something. So we, ha- we, we made a commitment to that. Like the, the most high-achieving kid in this class is going to learn something today. So we really privilege reading volume and listening volume, and we really privilege challenging, interesting text. Not, necessar- not for the reasons that other people might think, but because it, reading, learning more vocabulary words and more content makes you smarter and gives you more choices later on. At the very beginning of this episode, teacher Tammy Steele said that the long-term failure of Seaford schools was often blamed on the students. Here she is again, talking about how bookworms has changed that thinking. We've seen that it works with all kids, right? It works with all um, groups of kids from all different backgrounds, all different um, 
poverty, you know, poverty and not poverty, it works with all kids. So we are seeing that difference. We actually dismissed students from special education. Um, probably they were misidentified due to a lack of good instruction, um, <laughs> is what my thought is. Um, just an increase of kids reading. Like that was the one big thing from parents, from teachers, from you would see so many more kids just immersed in reading, carrying books with them to the buses, to the cafeteria, to the playground, um, loving, you know, enjoying reading, being able to have a greater conversation about reading, being able to write in response to reading um, that we had not seen before. So, um, and being able the last year, like really closing the achievement gap um, in the district and, um, so, yeah, just a huge change to the positive. Steele became such a believer in the power of bookworms that she now works for Walpole at the University of Delaware providing training for school districts that are implementing bookworms. Bookworms is too new to have the kind of research that can say whether it helps kids learn to read better than other programs. Walpole told me that she hopes other reading researchers will undertake such a study. But the Center for Research in Education and Social Policy at the University of Delaware recently documented the implementation of bookworms in Seaford. It said that the improvement seen in students' academic achievement was a measure of bookworms' success. For a link to that report, go to our webpage, www.edtrust.org slash extraordinarydistricts. To hear what bookworms sounds like, Let's accompany Principal Carol Levely into a third grade classroom at Frederick Douglass Elementary School. I don't believe in dog and pony shows, so visitors see what they see. Okay, ready? The O says O, the B says M, the ER works together to say her over. That's very scripted. Could. Starts with like phonics decoding. Then it goes to like vowel consonant vowel groups. Then it goes to blending. And eventually it gets to fluency. Then eventually it gets to vocab. This is one of the more beginning groups because most of the kids in this group are don't speak English as their first language. So even though this is a third grade classroom, a few in the class are still learning phonics. This is equivalent to what Cottonwood, in the last episode, calls taking back to zero. Because most of the children in this particular group do not speak English as a first language, they are still learning phonemic awareness and phonics in the skills portion of their instruction. But in other parts of the day, they are reading and listening to grade level and above grade level text. If you remember, I said that all groups of students are improving in Seaford. That includes students with disabilities and students whose first language is not English. While the whole class was engaged with what Bookworms calls partner reading, which has as its aim improving students' fluency and comprehension, I asked teacher Nicole Summers about how Bookworms is helpful for English language learners, or ELLs. It starts with a couple of vocabulary words, so I'm able to put images up there, which helps the ELL students. It also helps because I can pair them with a non-ELL when they do this partner reading, so I think that's another... Um, good strategy for them. They get to, when we are oral reading, like we were doing right before you walked in, we read the whole two chapters together. If they can't necessarily keep up, they can at least track with their fingers so they know they can see the words and are recognizing them. I asked her if she found the program confining. No, I like that there's that structure. I like that there's the routine because the kids know exactly what we're doing every day because we follow that. But I'm still able to add my own 
to it as well. When I visited Central Elementary, I found students following the same structures and reading the same books as at Frederick Douglass Elementary. Here is Central's principal, Becky Newbert, describing the program. There's an above grade level that everybody reads. There's an on, I guess you could say, grade level that everyone reads. And then during small group, it's whatever they need. But we never go below, much below grade level for any kid, ever. The reason this is important, she added, was because when children only read text that is at their reading level, they tend to stay at that level. And then you do this, flatline. Go from for the summer, there's it read, read, there's it don't, don't, Got gets bigger, bigger, bigger. So it's been a, a nice push. Newbert is talking about a well-known phenomenon, which is known as summer learning loss. Many students, particularly students from low-income homes, will lose ground in the summer. One of the reasons is that they don't read much when they're not in school. Standing in the hallway of her school, I asked Newbert about Seaford's experience of summer learning loss. Just then, Duncan Smith, who works in the district office, happened by. And we ran a traditional summer school, and the, you know, the results at the end were, yeah. So Seaford changed what it did. It had already been sending lunch trucks into the community to provide meals to children who qualified. It hired some teachers to go along. We had great turnouts at, uh, at each of the locations because families would come and they would eat and then they would leave in the past. Well, now they came, they, uh, they sat with some teachers, did an activity, did a, you know, a make and take where they would make something, take it home, where they would do some reading, you know, some other activities. And it was, uh, the turnout was great. We were getting good numbers for the lunch service, but then now they had these, uh, our certified teachers working with them in the summers. Here's Principal Newbert responding. We'll go to some of the local um, housing development or complexes, and there's little rooms in there. We bring lots of books to them, and when we go back to visit kids, it's nice to see them walking across the parking lot instead of like hitting each other, chasing each other. There's like a book in their hand because if they don't truly read, during the summer, they're going to miss opportunities, and that's achievement gap. Seaford doesn't yet have data to show whether sending teachers out with the food trucks is helping lessen the summer learning loss, but I want you to notice what this little anecdote demonstrates. Seaford was holding a traditional summer school, and it could have simply continued with it and never noticed that it wasn't producing better results for students. Instead, because of the district's commitment to continually evaluate its programs, it saw that summer school wasn't all that effective and is trying something else. As Superintendent Parrington said earlier, Life itself is trial and error and correcting it and then moving ahead and keep working on it. One of his points was that you can't learn from your errors if you don't study results. That means, among other things, assessment data. Here's Assistant Superintendent Corey Miklas again. Our common assessment system is another major reason why I think we grew. I had this firm belief that if I put in common assessments for, say, grades 2 through 8 or 2 through 12, and they were given every six weeks, the teachers saw them right away. They saw them before the, the teaching cycle happened. That They saw them, and they were rigorous, and everyone saw that, that they would now teach to that, and that gap would close. That's what I believed in. So I believe that you as a teacher would never want to see your students fail. So you would just up the rigor on your own because you knew what the goal was. At first, teachers from across the district created the assessments. 
you hear teachers say, I'm not an assessment writer, um, this is very difficult, time-consuming. It, it flopped. Talking with colleagues from across the state and at conferences, Miklas heard about a website that had a large bank of assessment questions. They became quicker to design common assessments. They still weren't perfect, and they're still not perfect now. Every summer we revise, um, but we have a good starting spot. Before the six weeks starts, we sit in a room like this, PLC. By PLC, Miklas means Professional Learning Community, a structured meeting where teachers meet. Uh, bring up the common assessment, and we sit as a group and say, what questions on this assessment is going to be troubling for our students? Why? What standards is this related to? Let's go in our curriculum that we're going to teach the next six weeks, find those kind of questions. Do we need to add more? Do we need to rephrase? So now they're dissecting standards, questions, lesson plans, and it's all for the purpose of a student doing well. But if I said today... Let's dive into our, our standards and pick them apart. They'd be like, oh my God, I'm not doing that. But you see, it's kind of like a greater purpose of students being successful gets everyone diving in instead of saying things, you know, like, let's take a look at our lesson plans and see if we have higher level questions this week. Once the teachers have given the common assessment, they meet back in their professional learning communities to examine the resulting data. This is called the bunker. Central Elementary Principal Newbert and I have walked into a classroom where teachers meet. The walls are covered with charts that show how students are doing in both English and math, teacher by teacher. This is an example of, you know, transparent data. So you can say, okay, this teacher didn't do so well here, but this teacher did well here. What did you do differently? And that's the, that's the conversations. And then we plan for next steps and implement them and come back and look at how, what the results were. We don't just talk about it. Newbert's assistant principal, Chandra Phillips, said that initially this kind of transparency was difficult for teachers to accept. Because that was a big hurdle that we had to jump over um, in the school is from teacher to teacher, being transparent and owning your style. I mean, if kids take a test and only 25% of your kids pass and 75% of mine pass, like, we had to get over the hurdle of even putting that information out there so that you would be like, they shouldn't be looking at my, you know, I mean, I see your 25%, but instead of me going, mm, 25%, we had to develop a culture where you go, yeah, 25%. Hey, Chandra, you got 75%. Like, girl, what you doing in your class? It's that kind of communication because if something's working, you should be willing as a teacher, as a reflective teacher, to be like, I need help. I'm throwing in my towel, and I need help. Karen, can you help me? And we do that in our PLCs. Miklas says that sometimes Seaford educators are accused of only caring about the data and numbers. So at the end of the day, it's a student behind that data, and what are some of the variables or reasons why they're, they're struggling? So we factor all that in. But the data gives us a starting spot to decide how we're going to help that student. So it's time to wrap up this episode. Seaford presents us with a complex story, a story rooted in a difficult racial history that contributed to the idea that low academic achievement could be blamed on the students themselves rather than on what the schools were doing. District and school leaders brought with them a deep 
belief in equity and the power of the scientific method to drive continual improvement. They braved the anger of some members of the community to ensure that all schools reflected the ethnic and class makeup of the community. They chose a reading program that has a strong scientific base and continually evaluate whether it is working for them. And the district has improved considerably. Seaford is still not where it needs to be. It still has plenty of room for growth. And we haven't talked at all about its middle and high schools, which have shown slower improvement than its elementary schools. But Seaford has come a long way from 2013 when three of its elementary schools were among the lowest performing in the state. In thinking back on this episode, it seems to me we have heard some themes that arose in earlier episodes. For example, the importance of equity. That is, making sure that all students are given what they need to achieve. The importance of school leaders who understand how to structure their schools for improvement. The importance of building a culture where teachers work together to expose and learn from expertise. The importance of following the data and research and the scientific method. The importance of choosing programs wisely and continually evaluating them. The importance of a school board that understands its responsibility. For anyone looking for easy ways to improve school districts, that is a frustrating list. There's nothing easy about any of those things. But we're starting to see that they may be what improving districts have in common. And they are things that pretty much any district could do. I mean, many districts are facing the same issues Seifer did, declining economy, skeptical parents, inadequate curriculum. In many ways, Seifer is a very ordinary district. What is helping it get extraordinary results is, well, I'll let Superintendent Dave Parrington sum up what he thinks. Getting data into the hands of individuals. So, so really, understanding our population, establishing relationships, Strong leadership, and that these are not in the sequence that necessarily they, they should be, but strong building leadership. And, and strong, I identify by, by one of the characteristics to me that that's the most important is, I never stop learning. I can get better at what it is that I'm doing. And acceptance beyond acceptance. A strong belief in equity that this is what it's about that you truly believe in. It's not just a, a, a word that, that you like to use, but it's in practice every day, and you can demonstrate that. We were able to demonstrate that diversity is, isn't something that lessens the oppor- opportunity. It, it increases opportunities for everyone. Let's see what we find in our next district. In the meantime, I hope you'll listen to our special episode on the Milford 11, which gives a lot more context and history for Seaford and all of Southern Delaware. And here I have to note a correction. In the episode on the Milford 11, I slipped and called Walter Key the former Secretary of Education. He was the Secretary of Agriculture. My apologies. Please subscribe to Extraordinary Districts so that you receive notifications about our next episodes, which were made possible with a grant from Overdeck Family Foundation. Our music is by Mike Patillo, who also recorded and edited this podcast at Tonal Park. And let us know what you think. Tweet us at, at edtrust or email extraordinarydistricts at edtrust.org. If you think this is a helpful podcast, I hope you'll consider contributing to the Education Trust. 
so that we can keep finding and learning from high-performing and rapidly improving school districts serving children of color and children from low-income families. They have a lot of expertise to share. This is Karen Chenoweth. See you next time.